Uh, well, thank you, uh, Alice and Elvin, for reading uh, those wonderful chapters for us uh, from the book of Exodus. Um, it'll be uh, great if you can have your Bibles open in front of you, because we're going to go through these chapters um, in uh, some detail this morning. Uh, and as you do that, um, I'm going to lead us in prayer uh, that God would help us to understand his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, that we've been able to gather uh, online this morning to hear your word. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and teaches us of your ways. And we pray this morning that you would um, indeed be present with us, uh, that you would speak to us uh, through the scriptures. And we ask that uh, you would help us to see uh, you clearly and in seeing you clearly, uh, we pray that we might be transformed to live a life that is pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, I, I want you to imagine something with me this morning. I want you to imagine a husband on the night of his wedding. He's just married the love of his life. He's excited to embrace his wife for the first time. And yet, when he opens the bedroom door, he finds to his utter shock and horror his wife in bed with another man who bears an awkward resemblance to himself. I mean, how horrified would he be? Imagine just how angry he would be. In fact, it would be a little bit strange if he didn't get angry, wouldn't it? For the husband who doesn't get angry in such circumstances is the husband who never really loved his wife in the first place. Now, that might be a shocking way to start uh, this morning, but I want to suggest that uh, it captures something of what we saw last week in the book of Exodus. Specifically, it captures the horror uh, of God seeing his people, the people of Israel, worshipping a golden calf not long after he had entered into a special covenant relationship with her. It really is like God, the husband, walking into the bedroom on the night of his wedding to see uh, the people of Israel, his bride, in bed with another God whom she has fallen in love with. It is one of the most spectacular failures of God's people in the scriptures in their sin and degeneracy and betrayal of God. Uh, now, in last week's passage in chapter 32, uh, you might have noticed that nothing has really been resolved in God's relationship with Israel. Uh, you might remember uh, back in chapter 32, verse 14, um, God relents from bringing disaster upon his people. But that is far from God forgiving his people. It, it is simply God deciding um, not to destroy his people immediately and to consume them immediately. Further, uh, although Moses tries to mediate between God and Israel, uh, God is still intending to punish his people. For uh, if you look back at chapter 32, verse 33, chapter 32, verse 33, you can see there these ominous words. It says, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
And so uh, I want you to see that nothing has really been resolved by the end of chapter 32 in the golden calf incident. Uh, what hope is there for those who have sinned so spectacularly before God? What hope is there for those who have betrayed God's love for them by going off and worshipping and loving idols instead? It's not an academic question, is it? For how often have you and I exchanged a love for God, our creator, who has given us all good things and loved created things above him? How many times have we betrayed God's love, even though we have tasted and seen something of God's goodness in our lives? What, what hope of forgiveness is there for such people? Well, uh, in our passage this morning, we can see the seriousness of Israel's sin in the disaster that he intends to bring upon the people of Israel. Uh, what is this disaster? Well, it is the disaster of not being present with his people as they journey towards the promised land. Uh, you can see it there in chapter 33, verse 3, chapter 33, verse 3, where God says to Moses, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Do you see what God is saying here? He's saying, I'm going to drive out the pagan nations before you so that you can enter the promised land. In other words, I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, if you remember, which if you remember involved the promise of land for the people of Israel. And yet God is saying here that he himself will not go up with them because he simply cannot be in the presence of this sinful people without destroying them. They are described here as being stiff-necked, a little bit like a donkey who stiff uh, that stiffens his neck because it is rebellious and doesn't want to go in the direction that his master is leading him. Uh, now, friends, uh, what do you think about what God is saying here? Uh, what do you think about being offered the promised land, but without God's presence? I wonder whether there are many professing Christians who would be happy to take this kind of deal. You know, there are many who are only too happy to take the benefits of belonging to God, uh, the benefits such as hope, the hope of heaven, or the benefits of living in a Christian community, or having Christian friends, and yet not really wanting God himself to be present and to be ruling in their lives. Uh, it's a bit like a gold digger who only wants the gifts that the wealthy husband gives, but he's not really in love with the giver of those gifts himself. Now, do you and I sometimes think like this about our relationship with God? Now, what do you think about the deal that God is offering here? Well, you can see in our passage that the people of Israel actually 
rightly respond to God here. They understand that not having God present with them will be utter disaster for them. For in the Bible, to be separated from God, to be apart from him, is not in fact a blessing, but in the end is the curse of death and destruction and misery. You might enjoy in this world, in this world all the good things that the world has to offer. But if God is not with you, then this means eternal death and destruction and disaster. Now that's why in verse 4, the people of Israel mourn when they hear this disastrous word and they take off their ornaments as a sign of repentance and turning away from sin in their lives, you see. For they understand just what a disaster it will be for them to travel to the promised land, but not have God himself with them. But further, you might have noticed that uh, verses 7 to 11 mentions a tent of meeting that Moses sets up. Now, uh, what, what does that remind you of, a tent of meeting? Well, uh, you might be reminded of the tabernacle that uh, has been described in previous uh, chapters. And uh, you might think that, well, this is a good thing because the tabernacle is the place where God um, uh, chose to, to dwell with his people and to be present with his people. And yet, if you look carefully at the passage, you'll see that this is not actually the tabernacle that has been described in previous chapters because that tabernacle is actually built later on in the book of Exodus. Rather, this is a personal tabernacle or a personal tent that Moses builds in order to personally meet with God. And you can see that those rather wonderful sounding words in verse 11, which says, uh, thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Friends, the thing is, um, I don't think these verses are meant to be hopeful verses for Israel. But rather, they are ominous verses suggesting just how angry God still is with the people of Israel. For notice where this tent is, is set up. Um, in verse 7, we are told that it is set up outside the camp of Israel. It's as though God wants to be apart from the people of Israel. Now, further, it's great that God is speaking uh, to Moses, but the point is that God is not meeting with and speaking to the people of Israel, who are his people. Uh, friends, I think we need to sit on passages like this from time to time, just so we understand that God is a God who gets angry. Now, that's a very unpopular view in our world these days, isn't it? For people don't like a God who gets angry at human sin. Now, often people ask, well, why can't God just forgive everyone if he is a God of love? Why does he get angry? And yet the point is that it is precisely because God is a God of love that he gets angry. 
if a husband does not get angry when his wife cheats on him, then it probably means that he never really loved her in the first place. There is a rightness to the anger of God, which means that forgiveness does not come cheaply or easily to him. And so is there any hope of forgiveness for the people of Israel? Well, the rest of chapter 33 answers this question with a resounding yes. And I want you to see two things here uh, about the forgiveness of God. Uh, Firstly, notice that this forgiveness comes through Moses, who pleads for the people of Israel as their mediator. Uh, You might have picked up that at this stage, it is still unclear which of the people of Israel will actually make it to the promised land. Uh, In last week's passage, you might remember that we saw God ordering, uh, sorry, we saw Moses ordering the slaughter of 3,000 Israelites for their part in the golden calf incident. Further, we saw God sending a plague on Israel, presumably wiping out many more. It's therefore unclear just who among the people of Israel will actually make it to the, to the promised land, if any at all. And so you can see there that Moses pleads for the rest of the people of Israel, and he begs that God will go with them to the promised land to be present with them. Uh, in verse 13, chapter 33, verse 13, he says, Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. I don't know whether you noticed, but after the golden calf incident, uh, God has not been been referring to Israel as his people anymore. He doesn't use the phrase, they are my people, as he did in the past. But here Moses pleads with God by saying, they are your people. And so please don't abandon them. Uh, What does God say to this? Well, you can see it there in verse 14, where he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, again, that might sound like good news, but um, it's a little bit hard to pick up in our English translations. But in the Hebrew language, Uh, The word you there is a singular you rather than a plural you. In other words, what God is saying here is that uh, I will go with you, Moses, singular. I will be present with you, Moses, but I will not be present with the people of Israel. But here's the persistence of the mediator. Uh, notice uh, Notice that Moses says to God, that if God does not go to the promised land with his people, then it's not worth going up to the promised land at all. In verse 15, you'll see there that Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? from every other people on the face of the earth. In other words, what Moses is saying here is 
that if God does not go with his people, and if God is not present with his people, then God's plans won't amount to anything. Do you remember what God's plans were in, in Exodus? Well, it involved his people, the people of Israel, being a distinct kingdom of priests and a holy nation who would make God's name known among the nations, among the pagan nations. But here Moses is saying that, well, if God does not go with his people, then this plan will amount to nothing. His people will not be distinct. The nations will not know that God is the one and only God. And so it is with these words from Moses that God decides that he will go with his people. He will be present with them. He will forgive them. In chapter 33, verse 17, it says there, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. You see, friends, this is what makes Moses one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. It is literally the case that the people of Israel had no hope of forgiveness and were dead in their sins. But because of Moses's role as the mediator, well, God decides to forgive his people. Notice that it's not that his people deserve forgiveness, but it is only because God favours Moses and he's pleased with him. But secondly, notice that Moses wants a sign from God that he will be present with Israel. Uh, that's why he asks God in verse 18, uh, please show me your glory. Uh, what is meant by the word glory? It's a word that's commonly used in, in the Bible, isn't it? Well, the glory of a thing or, or a person is the thing that gives weight or importance or splendor to that thing or person. And so, for example, the glory of Sydney might be its dazzling harbour. Uh, that's what gives Sydney its, its weight and its brilliance uh, among the world. The glory of Scott Morrison might be his office as the prime minister of this country. That's what gives him his weight and importance. The glory of Marilyn Monroe was her beauty. But what is the glory of God? Well, you'll see there that God mentions two things in verse 19. Two things in verse 19. He mentions, uh, firstly, his goodness, and secondly, his name. It's interesting here, isn't it, that God answers Moses' request to please show me your glory, uh, please let me see your glory, not by providing a physical image of himself like the other pagan gods, but in words describing his character and proclaiming his being. For God's glory is not seen in physical form, but it is seen in his character, which is one of goodness and mercy 
uh, even towards those who have spectacularly sinned against him. In fact, God's character is so glorious that Moses, uh, we are told, will have to hide in a cleft of a rock as God's glory passes by because God's glory will be so brilliant. Moses can only have a small glimpse here. Later on, we see this happening in chapter 34, verse 6. Chapter 34, verse 6, where we are told that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, a, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers in the, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Notice that this is the first time since the golden calf incident that the word forgiveness is used. For the glory of God is that his grace and mercy and forgiveness will ultimately trump his rightful judgment and justice and punishment of human sin and wrongdoing. It's not quite clear at this stage how this will come about. Uh, in fact, there is a tension here, isn't there? For God is a God who needs to punish sin and wrongdoing because God is a God of justice. It is right to punish sin and wrongdoing in this world, isn't it? Rather than just brushing sins and wrongdoing under the carpet. And yet God is also a God who wants to show grace and mercy towards sinners in forgiving their sins. How is it that God can be a God of perfect justice as well as a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness as well? Well, I want to suggest that this tension is not fully resolved in the Old Testament. Rather, it, it's left hanging a little bit until the coming of Jesus in the New Testament and specifically his death on the cross. For it is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where we see, on the one hand, God's perfect justice being done as Jesus dies in our place, paying the penalty that your sins and my sins deserved. But on the other hand, we see God's grace and mercy towards those who trust in this death. For Jesus is the one who, uh, at the cross, turns away God's anger from us and brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Now, friends, are you someone who has spectacularly sinned against God in your life? Are you someone who has betrayed God's love for you by worshipping created things rather than the creator himself? Do you have unresolved sin in your life that you've been hiding from God but which personally offends him? Well, I want you to see that it is at the cross that you see the glory of God in all its brightness. It is at the cross that you see his glorious grace and mercy 
in all its dazzling beauty. And so will you go to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus this morning? For the promise of God is that uh, those who humble themselves at the foot of the cross in this way will be the ones who see God's glory and who find forgiveness from him. Uh, well, friends, uh, the final thing I want you to see in this passage is that the grace and mercy of God results in a glorious transformation. Uh, you can see the grace and mercy of God in chapter 34 in the way that God renews his special covenant relationship, which was pre previously broken by the sin of his people. Uh, you can see it there in chapter 34, verse 10, where it says, And behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Uh, now you can see something of the nature of this covenant that God uh, renews in the following verses. Uh, we won't have time to look at all these verses uh, in detail this morning. But the thing I want you to see here is that the covenant relationship with God involves an exclusive loyalty to him. Uh, that's why in verse 13, chapter 34, verse 13, Israel is instructed to tear down any altars and pillars dedicated to other gods when they enter the promised land, for God is a jealous God. Not in the petty ways in which we often get jealous, but in the rightful jealousy that a husband might have for his wife in the context of a marriage relationship, an exclusive marriage relationship. Further, in verse 17, they are not to make and worship any idols as they did uh, not too long ago. In verse 18, they are to keep a festival that reminds them of the God who has saved them from slavery in Egypt. In verse 21, they are to keep the Sabbath as a reminder that they are to trust in God to bring them blessing in the promised land rather than to trust in their own work and strength. You see, God here repeats all the parts of the law that have to do with the requirement of exclusive worship of God. Moses is then, then instructed to write down these words from God and specifically to write down the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. Uh, it's a great visual reminder that the covenant relationship between God and his people that was previously symbolized by uh, the Ten Commandments on, on the, written on the tablets has now been renewed. The tablets that were smashed and broken before are now put back together again. But friends, here's the astonishing thing. Uh, you can see there at the end of chapter 34 that because Moses has seen God's glory, his face ends up reflecting God's glory by shining and glowing and being radiant as he comes down from the mountain to speak to the people. In fact, it is so radiant that after he speaks to the people, he needs to put a veil over his face to protect the people from God's glory. 
this is the pattern notice that is repeated again and again. Uh, you can see it there in verse 34. Verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You see what's going on here? Moses is transformed by seeing God's glory as God speaks to him on the mountain, as he hears God's word on the mountain. His face is transformed. He becomes a little bit more like God himself. But there is still a sense here that while Moses is transformed, the people of Israel cannot see fully the glory of God because a veil prevents them from seeing it and being transformed to be like God. It's a bit like Moses has become a mini tabernacle here, complete with veil that separates the two rooms, if you remember that separates the people from seeing the glorious God and being transformed like him, to be like him. Now, uh, reflecting on this part of Exodus, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that when a person turns to Jesus in repentance and faith, it's like the veil is lifted. For in Jesus... Uh, we become like Moses, seeing the glory of God himself. In Jesus, we see the glory of God's mercy and grace that trumps his judgment. And like Moses, those who see God's glory in this way are transformed more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's as those it's as though those who see Jesus' glory are those who will shine in the sense of being transformed to be more like God himself. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, that is Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding or seeing the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, a few days ago, I bumped into a non-Christian uh, person who spoke to me about a Christian friend of hers who uh, just happens to belong to our church family. And I couldn't help but notice that she spoke of this Christian friend in such glowing terms. And she mentioned just how thankful this Christian friend always seemed to be in her life. She mentioned just how different this Christian friend was compared to all her other friends in the things that she lived for and in the things that mattered to her. Now, uh, knowing who this person is, uh, I know that this Christian person has not had an easy life. She has had her fair share of grief and difficulty and sorrow. 
But you see, even the non-Christian person could see something of the shine and radiance and glory of this person because she had been transformed by the glorious grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ in her life. My brothers and sisters, have you and I been transformed in this way? Uh, when others see you and when others see me, will they notice that we have been transformed by the glorious grace of God? Uh, do you shine in this dark world in a way that is different to the world because you have been transformed by God speaking to you in his word? and speaking to you of his grace and mercy. It is impossible for one to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and be left untransformed. For God's people are the ones who will shine and radiate and be glorified to reflect God's glory in this world. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a glorious God, a God who is jealous for your people. And Father, we thank you that although we are a people who are often stiff-necked and stubborn in our sin and our idolatry and do not deserve anything from you, you have showered us with your grace and mercy at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that at the cross we see your glory as your justice and your mercy comes together in a way that brings us forgiveness and reconciliation with you. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the glory of your cross more and more in our lives in ways that will transform us into the image of your Son. And we pray that you would help us not to be a stubborn people who refuse to heed your word of grace, but that we might love your word and live out your word so that we might shine in this world in ways that bring you glory and honour as we hold out the hope of uh, salvation and eternal life to those around us who do not know you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.